Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about new ideas from thought leaders in the area of optimal health, the science of mind gut microbiome interactions, food, and the environment. Today, I had the great pleasure to speak again to Sean Stevenson, creator and host of the Model Health Show, featured as the number one health podcast in the US with millions of listeners downloads each year. Sean Stevenson is the author of the USA Today national bestseller, Eat Smarter, and the recently published companion book, Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. A graduate of the University of Missouri, St. Louis, Sean studied business, biology, and nutritional science and became the co-founder of Advanced Integrative Health Alliance. He has been featured in Forbes, the New York Times, Muscle and Fitness, ABC News, ESPN, and many other major media outlets. Welcome to the show, Sean. So you've previously published the best-selling book, Eat Smarter, which I really enjoyed, and we've talked about it before. What motivated to you to write the companion book, Eat Smarter Family Cookbook? Well, there's two parts. One was kind of a return to my origins in this field. Um, I just crossed my 21st anniversary of working in health and wellness. And I started off working at the university gym that I was attending uh, over 21 years ago. And from there, you know, of course, doing my work in in, in the university and, and whatnot. But outside of that, I was teaching food prep classes. All right. So it started off, I, it was a couple of my clients from the gym. There was three people in my first audience. And two of them were my clients. The other person I didn't know, but I was scared to death. I was so nervous to speak in front of people and to, you know, but I had a lot to share. And I knew that there was a bridge between where they were at currently with, you know, coming from the same environment that I did, eating a lot of predominantly ultra processed foods was the makeup of our diet to eating real delicious, wholesome, nutrient dense foods. There was a bridge and that bridge was deliciousness. And so introducing people to that, I was so excited about doing it as well. And so it went from three people to five to 10 to 15 to now we have to like rent out buildings and things like that because it started in my mother-in-law's kitchen, actually. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a return to origins for, for me with that because that was really my biggest passion. And also me being a nutritionist, I'm deeply infatuated with food, with all things food and nutrition, but... The second part of that is, you know, with the with the publishing of Eat Smarter, and this was the last week of 2020 when it came out, which was a crazy time to publish a book. It was crazy enough. It was the number one new release of all books in the United States for a brief moment. And it was competing with, you know, uh, Michelle Obama and Matthew McConaughey and all this stuff for the top sold books in the country, which is crazy that people were so passionate about food. And this book was a big idea book around food. And we broke down, as we talked about previously, um, how met metabolism actually works. You know, how does our body actually interact with food and the process of, quote, fat loss and fat burning actually happen? Where does fat go when you lose it? But also how food plays a key part in our metabolic health, our cognitive function, our sleep wellness, and a lot of other things. And there was a tiny part of the book that I dedicated to, you know, some recipes. And I was shocked 
I was shocked when I saw how many people were making those recipes and posting them online. It was like the biggest thing people were doing. And I put so little, I put 99.5% of my energy into creating, you know, the kind of the, the big ideas and the concepts. And that was awesome. You know, there's thousands of reviews on Amazon, for example, um, for that, for the information in the book. But I was so shocked to see that when it boiled down to it, people just wanted to make delicious recipes and share them with people. And so I was like, and, and last part was, this was without having any photos in the book or anything like that. People were just making the recipes. And so I was like, the, the people want recipes. They want to see and experience beautiful food and beautiful food experiences. And so that I got to work and we had, you know, about 60 or 70 recipes that we really perfected over the years that were absolutely delicious, all real food-based ingredi um, ingredients. And the last part was, you know, I was shocked to see there was a missing gap in this kind of communication with food in the context of recipe books. And so I leveraged the thing that I saw was missing, which is it's not just the food itself, it's the environment. And so I shared a bunch of new science. And as you know, you know, there's over 250 peer reviewed references in this cookbook, which is crazy, plus a hundred delicious recipes. And so, you know, we melded together all this wonderful food science, delicious recipes, and the science around how environment impacts our food choices. I mean, the thing I like particularly about it, which makes it unusual is, you know, to, to put the name family cookbook in it, because as you say, the context is very important and a big part of, of your new book really has to deals with the importance of family and friends and sharing, preparing and sharing these meals with, with the family, which I think is, 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 a, is, is a key, you know, and we can discuss this in sort of more detail because that same thing applies, I would say, to the Mediterranean, to the benefits of the Mediterranean diet, that the social interactions, and I don't know if it's if it's half-half, what you eat and in what context you eat it, or if the context is even more important, which I would not be surprised, you know, from studies. I agree. And you're you're gonna be surprised. Well, maybe not, because you know so much about this stuff. I actually had to fight a little bit with the publisher with putting family in the title. All oh. right. They're like traditionally, they were saying, you know, put family in the subtitle. I'm like, no, no, no. This is family. Family is the entire umbrella on which under which this is uh getting created. This is really about the social interactions, primarily for me as the writer of the book. And again, people are going to use the book differently depending on where they are. And I saw the same thing with this book too. You know, again, if you go to Amazon. There are so many, and I don't know these folks. I'm I'm happy about it, but they're creating the recipes. They're posting their photos on Amazon mm -hmm. of the food and just sharing how good the food is. Again, a wonderful science, yes, but when it boils down to it, it's about making wonderful food. And a lot of those reviews also are saying how they're inviting their kids into the kitchen and they're making food with their family members. And they hadn't really thought about that before. And so there's two parts to it. One is the preparation of food and community and how we've been doing that forever. And the other part is eating together with people that you care about. And of course, we're going to talk about the, the real health ramifications. Like I was able to discern. So first of all, we got some really interesting data on health outcomes, but I was able to dig and find out what are some of the actual behind the scenes changes that are happening with our biology, with our psychology, when we are eating with other people. 
Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're going to come back to this interesting topic later. Um, um, I wanted to to sort of ask you this about, uh, and we've talked about this before. Um, in the introduction of your book, you talked about your own journey from childhood of poor health, growing up in an unhealthy food culture, um, and you know, encountering um, poor health and health complications and predictions of you know that nothing can be done and. Um, how how have these experiences influenced you to become a healthy food, healthy lifestyle guru on a mission to change the national food culture and conversation? You know, what I love about this is that we have so many incredible perspectives, you know, where your perspective is remarkable. We've talked about this many times, you know, your experience and, you know, long before the microbiome was in vogue, you were standing as an advocate and working, you know, trying to educate your peers and of course, educate the public at large. And coming from where you come from, it's going to have a certain, uh, it's going to have a certain flavor to it. It's going to have a certain perspective. And my perspective is very unique. And there aren't many people like me who actually are from a food desert, you know, this kind of new glorified term, which I don't particularly like the term, because the word desert still kind of signifies a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe it's exotic or, you know, that word desert doesn't quite fit the bill here. Yeah. What we're talking about really is a place where, you know, for the most part in the United States, uh, environments that are riddled with crime, that are riddled with poor health, like the highest rates of poor health in, in the United States, and also absolutely immersed in ultra processed foods. You know, zoning laws don't apply here. A lot of times there's fast food just like stacked on top of each other. Um, liquor stores and check cashing places and just the these conditions that are really, unfortunately, structured in a way that keeps people sick, poor and disempowered. And that's where I come from. You know, so I grew up actually when I made this transformation with my health, I was living in Ferguson, Missouri, but I really lived all over St. Louis as a kid. You know, we moved uh, about 12, maybe 13 times, you know, just not being able to pay the bills and going on to the next place. And, you know, my mom would get food from charities. There's a place called the Hosea House that we get, um, you know, food rations. Of course, there's government assistance, food stamps and WIC and all these different things. And you know, you might, he again, coming from the environment, I can actually share what it's like and the real perspective. Because for me and some of my peers, we might hear that and be like, like, just figure out a way, work harder, figure it out, get out of that environment, get off government assistance. My mother worked overnight at a convenience store to try to pay the bills and make ends meet. And she was stabbed multiple times. Mm -hmm. This is a true story. She would sell her blood to try to put food on our table. You know, but, you know, I have my stepfather in the household and he's coming from a background. We're living in this environment during the crack epidemic. And he had already lost one of his brothers, his other brothers in and out of prison. And, you know, he's alcoholic. He's just trying to, he doesn't know how to manage his psychology. He's just doing what the environment is, is putting in front of him, you know? And so he, he showed up, he kept going to work every day, but addiction and poor health, the same things over overtook him. And I'm saying all this to say, just kind of kind of set this up. 
this might sound like a pretty bad environment. And there's a lot, there is, there's violence in the, you know, outside my door. You do have to be on alert. You could, you know, there could be a drive-by. It could, you know, it's just, it is what it is. And also in my inside my household as well, there's a lot of violence. But what people don't understand is that there is this kind of extreme level of creativity that is born in an environment like that. Because we don't have access to certain things, we find a way. And so people might see, you know, these, these images of, you know, kids playing basketball on a crate, on a pole, you know, like I literally did that. I literally did that. There was a crate in the back, in, our, in the alley in the back of our apartment complex, and we played basketball on there. And, you know, just being able to, if I could summarize it in one phrase, it would be the creativity to make something out of nothing, to make beauty out of ugliness, you know, and that's really the, the beauty of living in that environment, having this really remarkable ability to create and to be creative and to find a way. And so transitioning that into, okay, so what does this structure actually look like? Well, a big part of the issue is uh, government subsidies, all right? Because I would question, like, why is it possible that I can go to McDonald's or Taco Bell, or let's use Jack in the Box as an example. That was my favorite at the time uh, when I was, you know, in college. And you can get two tacos for 99 cents. Two tacos for 99 cents, all right? And an avocado at the same time costs $2. So I can get four tacos for the price of one avocado, all right? And the crazy thing is, and it's always bothered me, was like, how is something so cost intensive as a taco, which we've got, you know, the shell of the taco, we've got the, you know, the sprinklings of veggies, we've got the meat and the cheese, we've got the packaging, we've got the workers involved, we've got the marketing involved, we've got, the list goes on and on. It is such an, a cost intensive thing to create. And an avocado literally Emran, I'm looking at an avocado tree on my block right here. They are literally fall off the tree and I walk by and they're just on the ground. Okay. How is something that falls off the ground so much more expensive? And the reality is we have a structure, unfortunately, it's not just in the United States, but we're really the king of this to where it's, it's rewarded to produce ultra processed foods. And what I mean by that is most of the foods that come through the drive-through window when we find in ultra-processed foods are actually a big part of government subsidy programs. And there was a study that was published in JAMA, and this was a multi-year analysis, and they found that about $170 billion over the span of the study, which was 10 to 15 years, was doled out to companies that were growing these the, the core ingredients for many of the ultra-processed foods, corn, soy, um, wheat, so these things that largely show up through the drive-through window and ultra-processed foods. And not just that, they looked at, okay, when our citizens are eating these foods that are, we're paying through government subsidies, what happens to their health? And I was shocked that this study was published. And I love that scientists are asking these questions. And what they found was that our citizens who ate the most government-subsidized foods, the, the foods that are, when I say the government is paying for, we're paying for with our tax dollars, the citizens who were eating the most government subsidized foods had about a 30% higher incidence of developing obesity, 
uh, chronic inflammation measured by things like C-reactive protein, insulin resistance, their health was far worse the more foods that they were eating through this government subsidy program. And so very little was going to the farming of real foods, you know, things like avocados, fruits and vegetables, berries, and things like that. It's a tiny, tiny, we're talking less than a fraction of a percent, less than, far less than 1% is going to those kind of crops. They're mainly going to these, quote, cash crops, you know, various forms of sugar, you know, corn, soy, wheat, and the like. And so that's really the, the construct of how these foods were so cheap. And the last quick point here is, they're, they're incredibly cheap and also living in a low-income environment. What are you going to do? My mom chose to, like, I could feed my, my kids for two days at McDonald's, or I can feed them for one day if I go to the grocery store and get what I deem to be a kind of well-rounded, healthy meal, all right? And so that's just what we did because it was cheap, it was accessible, and the last part is it tasted really good. And there's a it, definitely a big reason behind that. We could talk more about that as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, these foods are designed to make you hooked on it. You know, I mean, it's it's cheap food, but um, with flavors and ingredients that that the people that make it, you know, they used to come. A lot of these people came from the tobacco industry. They know how to get people hooked on, on on on, on certain things. And um, yeah, so a quick comment on this. So. Yeah, the people that are being that that buy this subsidized food, this this unhealthy food, <clears throat> not only are they more prone to develop obesity and metabolic diseases, and you know this causes chronic non-contagious disease epidemic, but also what came out during the during the pandemic um, that they're also uh, you know were more prone to get uh, uh, COVID nineteen infections, and when they got it, uh, had greater rates of hospitalizations and greater mortality and even greater um, prevalence of, of long COVID symptoms. So it's not just, you know, I mean, just uh, the obesity problem. It's It goes way beyond this. So we, we're this unhealthy food culture driven by companies that know exactly how bad it is, but they also know how, how lucrative it is for them. Um, that this causes massive costs for for society down the road with, you know, all the all the medical expenses and the pharmaceuticals and the, so it's it's like um, sometimes I think it's it's do do people not know enough the people that make these decisions, or do they do it they know it, but they do it anyway because it's profitable you know it's part of the American capitalistic system anything you make uh, you know big profit on. Is 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 good for society. I, I'm I'm not sure what, what I believe. You know which of those two options. The other thing I was going to say is, and and you you brought this up. So it's it's this cost difference between the the healthy food that are significantly twice three times more expensive than um, than the unhealthy food choices. So if I look at your cookbook, beautiful dishes, you know. Can can people that live in these impoverished neighborhoods that barely like the experience that you had as a as a child, can they do something with this cookbook? Can they afford buy these ingredients and and make these dishes even if they wanted to? So that that's a that's always a big question, you know. 
And I'm the person to, to answer this question because again, I'm from this environment so I can answer this from experience and not just theory. And absolutely, yes, because when I transformed my health, I was living in Ferguson, Missouri. And when I say transform my health, and just a brief snapshot of this, as you mentioned, at the time I was diagnosed with degenerative disc disease and my spine, according to my physician, was that of somebody, my, the appearance of my spine looked like I was in my 80s and I was just 20 years old. All right. So I had severe degeneration of my L4 and L5S1. They were black on the MRI. No light was shining through them. And they were bo both herniated. And I was in a lot of pain. And I, in addition to that, I'd broken my hip. I broke my hip at track practice just from running because my bone density was so low. Chronic asthma, allergies. You know, my brother was in and out of the hospital you know, our entire childhood from chronic asthma. And we talked about this recently, you and I on my show. And my sister had the most terrible eczema. A child should never have to suffer like that. It was crazy. And, you know, obesity, pretty, I'd say 95% of my family members were obese. And so this is, this is the situation that I'm dealing with. And so me being able to transform my health and not just be a guy who lost weight and look like I lost weight, but become radiantly healthy and to regenerate the tissue that was lost. You know, I just got a scan of my spine done a couple of years ago and my spine, the appearance of my spine is structurally, functionally that of somebody younger than I am right now. All right. Being in my forties. All right. And this was also seen, this was nine months later after I decided to get well and make some of the changes I'm about to share. Nine months after getting my scan done, my the two herniated discs had already retracted and they were in position. And there was some suppleness in my disc again, where I can actually see the light shining through them. And at the time, I remember, you know, I my physician was standing there with his hand on his chin, just like what he this this is where his exact words. He said, "Whatever you're doing, keep doing it." I haven't seen results like this before. And I shared a little bit about what I was doing. I was like, you know, I was talking about these different nutrients. I was like, you know, I just came across this buddy book. It had all these different studies on these different nutrients for bone density and for your spine and all these different things. And he, I'm not going to say he seemed disinterested, but if I was him and I saw those kind of results, because for him, I know in his head, and you know this as well, he probably was still leaning into this concept of spontaneous remission. Like this just happened. Yeah. Just like the condition just happened to me in the first place when I asked him, why did this happen to me? And he literally said, this is something that just happens. This is something that just happens. And I'm sorry that it happened to you. And I asked him, did this, does, does this have anything to do with what I'm eating? And this is when I first got diagnosed. And I, for years, I thought I didn't have any grounds to ask that question. But at that point, I did have nutritional science in my university. And I knew that food had something to do with health, but I was miseducated in that in that expensive university class as well about the real connection. And so what I want to share is this, coming from that environment and being able to, and at this point, there was one Whole Foods, you know, Whole Foods is obviously a very popular chain of largely, you know, a lot of organic products, grocers across the country. In St. Louis, which is a big major city, city there was one Whole Foods in the entire city and there was one wild oats, which is which has since been bought by Whole Foods. And I had decisions to make, right? Once I found out 
how important things like omega-3 fatty acids were for my bone density and for the health of my intervertebral disc. And this is based on peer-reviewed published data that nobody ever told me about. And I'm not exaggerating. I ate ultra-processed foods. About 90% of my diet was ultra-processed foods. And we could talk about how that compares to published data on where we are as a society in America because I was not that abnormal in that. But I can honestly say I hardly ever got a viable source of omega-3 fatty acids in my diet annually. I'm talking maybe a speckle here and there. So my body was literally just hanging on, trying to do a patchwork job. And knowing this, that I needed to get these key nutrients, once I found this out, the first thing that I did, Emerin, and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but it's still a part of my story. First thing I did was, oh, I need these nutrients. I just started buying all these supplements, mm -hmm. right? So I became a natural pill popper. I went from you know, my, my array of pharmaceutical drugs, both prescribed and over the counter to help me sleep at night, to get, you know, some of this pain, uh, to be reduced. Now I'm buying all these supplements and I'm kind of missing the point still, which is where are these nutrients coming from? And also, I mean, we could share a little bit about this. There are, there is, there's a mountain of data now looking at synthetic versions of nutrients versus real food or whole food forms of those nutrients and how they interact with our cells, this term called bioavailability. And so once I really kind of flipped that switch, which I'm grateful that it happened relatively quickly. And part of it was out of necessity because it was so expensive buying all these supplements. And so focusing on where can I find these things in real food that has all these other things, all these other cofactors. And so here's the one of the keys, which was Yes, I can go to Whole Foods. Yes, I'm making a strategic decision to invest in my health, which that led to me once I started feeling better, once I got healthier, that led to me making more income, that led to me making a bigger difference in the world and all these other things. There's that part. But then there's also the other part of, if I'm going to be healthy in this environment, I have to stop thinking in conventional terms, which is I have to go to this grocery store and exchange all the money that I made spending my time trying to make this money in exchange for these products. When traditionally humans have bartered, humans have, um, you know, people were specialized in certain things and people would go to markets and actually talk to people who were actually making these things and growing these things. Little did I know there was a farmer's market in Ferguson as well, all this time. And it was in the quote, good part of Ferguson. All right. This was this the the nice part of Ferguson, which was only seven, five, seven minutes from my house. But you know, I started going to the farmers market, and I was getting things I was spending money at Whole Foods for. Sometimes it would be half the price. And also, I'm bringing my family along. We get to talk to the farmers. We get to you know hear their passion, hear what they're doing, you know why they're growing things the way that they're growing them, and also there's so much more integrity in the process. You know, there's a lot of love and there's this close proximity, which, you know, the, even the food, it was more nutrient dense. It was just picked. It wasn't mm. sitting at the store in the produce section, even for a week. It was just like, boom, it's right here in your hand. So we're getting so much more from, from less. And so thinking differently is one of the keys. So accessing, because no matter where we are in the country, pretty much there's going to be farmer's markets, there's CSAs that you can invest a certain amount of money in and they deliver you, you know, a box of, you know, produce 
and it's going to depend on the seasons. Um, there is uh, so many different online retailers now that are delivering food right to your door at kind of wholesale prices and deep discounts. It's just like getting plugged in and thinking differently about our shopping. And I was able to, again, procure all this amazing food. I could still pay my light bill and keep my lights on and get myself radiantly healthy in the process. I mean, listening to you, it's it's no longer the lack of availability in these food deserts, but it's really the awareness uh, that people need to have that they um, a realize how bad this food is that they have been, you know, have been consuming, and secondly, that there are, you know, affordable ways to uh, to actually add those healthy things. And a, a side comment to the supplements: I mean, we're living in this this in this intriguing paradoxical time. On the one side, you know, ultra processed food more popular than ever, devoid of 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 the main ingredients like phytonutrients and minerals and um you know micronutrients and at the same time this boom billion dollar boom in the supplement business so it's you know industry makes money on both ends of this selling the the, the junk food and on the other side uh side selling the these 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 supplements and i think a lot of people that take the supplements I mean, some people change their dietary habits as well, um, but a lot of them do not. They think now popping all these supplements, that's a substitute. And I mean, there's some interesting studies have one, particularly this um, uh, Cosmos study that has looked at um, flavanol supplements in, in, in thousands of uh, patients and what they found. So the benefit, this is one of the few supplements that actually has um, you know, randomized control evidence behind it of the effectiveness, both for cardiovascular disease and for cognitive function, they found that the group that at baseline had the healthiest diet showed a non-significant increase in benefits for, for, for these two, for brain and heart functions. The ones that had the lowest um, actually showed, showed the greatest uh, benefit. So it's clearly... You know, demonstrating that if you're on a healthy diet, you really don't need the supplements for most things. If you're on an unhealthy diet or don't have access or are not aware of it, then certain supplements, and it's I, I would say it's less than a handful that I would put my name under, um, you know, have that benefit that can make up for the deficiency you get from your food. Um, so, so I think this is kind of an interesting, I mean, it's not going to change the business of supplements, you know, which is a multi-dollar uh, business. But I think for somebody like myself, who's been a skeptic of supplements for a long time, I think that explanation, if you are on the healthiest diet, you don't need them. If you're on a deficient diet, it's a pretty good idea to take certain supplements to, you know, to improve your health. That's what I was taught in my university nutritional science class was, in addition to kind of this calorie dogma that we were taught on day one, you know, calories without context. Um, he also recommended if you're going to be working with patients, always recommend people take a multivitamin, right? It's just very cookie cutter information. But at the time, of course, I didn't need, nor the rest of the students in the class, nor did my professor know this, that there are multiple forms of vitamin C. There are multiple forms of magnesium, of B12, the list goes on and on. And that synthetic 
so-called multivitamin, or is that the form that my body actually needs and that it's actually bioavailable? Because, but if somebody is not eating a well-rounded, healthy diet, that multivitamin could definitely help them, you know, uh, live a little bit better. And so there's context here, but also certain supplements, like you said, and again, I've being in this field all this time, I've tried some of everything and all these companies are always sending me stuff. But for myself personally, there are very few things that, you know, I would recommend kind of across the board. And even for myself, I kind of cycle things, you know, I really do my best to get high quality omega threes through my food. But that's one of those places because for example, you know, as I mentioned with my with my bone density, and this was published in PLOS One, this is one of the studies that I referenced in the East Smarter Family Cookbook. But 20 years prior, there was another study published that I came across, but this was a new study and what they affirmed, and this was Public Library of Science One PLOS One, was that omega-3s in particular increased and improved bone density in the lumbar spine and in the hips of all these different study participants. And those were the two areas of my body that were breaking down the most, you know? So omega-3s were so important. I had no idea about this. And now here's the thing. We're totally deficient in them. I mean, most, uh, most yes, likely, that's the thing. Listening to your dietary habits when you were young. <laughs> totally so if, if, if I'm not getting these things in through my, through my diet, you know, and I start to bring in a supplement, yes, it's going to be helpful. But here's the key, and I mentioned this earlier, and I want to share this study with you. Um, and this is one of the key nutrients. You know, I, I don't like when we kind of put a tag on certain nutrients as well, like it's good for this, because we, we there's so much that we don't know yet. But some of the things we've established for one of the most overlooked vitamins is uh, vitamin E, is its benefit with cardiovascular health, with cognitive function, uh, with the health of our skin. And one of the studies that I mentioned in the book, this was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and they determined that natural vitamin E from food sources, this could even be a concentrate from a food source, but naturally occurring vitamin E has nearly twice the bioavailability as synthetic vitamin E that you would find in a conventional multivitamin, mm -hmm. right? Or a vitamin E supplement if it's not food-based. So two times, twice as usable by our cells. There's a recognition there. And we evolved eating food. We evolved interacting with these food-based nutrients. And also here's another key to that is that there are all these other interesting cofactors. And we know about some of them now, but there's still thousands of components of food that we still don't understand yet. We don't, we don't know yet. And so I can go on and on. I shared data on synthetic vitamin C versus whole food-based vitamin C. That's one of the scariest ones because a lot of folks don't realize that the majority of vitamin C supplements on the market are from GMO corn syrup and cornstarch. That's where these kind of glorified vitamin C things you might see at the checkout, they're coming from these really low quality sources. And there's a study published in the journal Cardiology, and they looked at test subjects who were engaging in a very detrimental and kind of inflammatory process, which was smoking. And they want to find out if food-based vitamin C or versus the synthetic vitamin C, if there was a difference. And so the researchers had the smokers to consume camu camu berry, which is probably the most dense source of botanical vitamin C that's been discovered, or synthetic vitamin C supplement of a comparable amount. 
And at the end of the one-week study, they found that study participants, when they're taking the camel camelberry, had a significant reduction in inflammatory biomarkers like C-reactive protein. And there were no changes in these biomarkers in the synthetic vitamin C group. All right. So again, I could go on and on and on. This is something that was kind of theorized, but now we have data affirming this. Food really does matter. Yeah. And I think, I mean, so you mentioned bioavailability, you know, which is a big factor. Um, but it's also, you know, the, the the pharmacy of nature is 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 not like the single pill acting on a particular receptor and you know having a very um, reductionistic effect on your metabolism. It's hundreds or thousands of molecules interacting, often in very low concentrations. So, you know, it's not like if you think you, you you're consuming 10 grams of vitamin C, synthetic vitamin C, that's the best thing for your, you know, for your health. If you have hundreds of components that have milligrams, you know, of of of, of these vitamins, but they're taken together, um, a good example for this are uh, polyphenols. You know, there's thousands of these molecules um, in 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 plant-based foods, and not only are there thousands, but then when we eat them, the microbes break them down in even more subcomponents. So you you might be dealing with tens of thousands of molecules that are in your intestine, <clears throat> partially from what you eat, partially from what they, what, what your microbes do to them. And many of them, most of them are absorbed and are distributed, diluted in, uh, in your body. So the health benefit, in my opinion, comes from this vast amount of, of you know, ev evolution developed and tested um, health benefits from living off berries and tubers and uh, plants. So it's it's a fundamentally, I mean, essentially it's it's a paradigm shift in our understanding how healthy food items work. And the supplement industry has not caught on to this at all. You know, it's like, um, I think we need to realize that um, health is not, doesn't equal taking pills or taking individual ingredients. It's um, being in harmony with what nature has created over billions of years. Uh, the wisdom that's in that food is something that our body, our brain can extract and um, will take us hundreds of years before we figure this out <clears throat> from a scientific standpoint. And, and maybe we never will, you know, it's- uh... Right. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the movie WALL-E. Have you no, seen I that movie by chance? Movie. So it's a, it's an animated film. And it's kind of like a, a dystopian future, kind of if we're going along the way that we're going along. And at that point, you know, all of humanity is morbidly obese in these kind of reclining flying chairs. And just... oh, I think I have seen it. I think. I have... <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the reality is like, again, we don't know if this is going to pan out for us because so many of us are unwell. According to the CDC, just from 2022, uh, 2022, just as Previous year, 60% of American adults now have at least one chronic disease and 40% have two or more. We're not doing well, but, and this is the, the bright spot and the hope that we have is there is this emergence of empowerment and education and people who are passionate about getting well and creating a healthier environment to, and also serving other people. And so we've got these kind of two different tracks right now. And, you know, there was a break um, in in science, in medicine, a few decades back where we just went so deeply 
into this kind of paradigm of better living through chemistry and pharmacology. And of course it has its place. It absolutely, life-saving, absolutely. And when we start to make that everything, we are going to miss out on the fact that we are human beings and we have all of these very critical things that our genes expect from us, that our DNA requires in order for healthy function and healthy replication of ourselves. And if we don't get these inputs, yes, we could, you know, mute a symptom with pharmacology, but how about we just remove the need for that thing, which, as you said earlier, is this a situation where it's known and it's just not cared about? Or is it a situation where, you know, this is just the nature of the business is capitalism and, you know, every company has a right to, but for me, I'm a big proponent of of honor and ethics. And for me, these are the most important qualities as a human being. And, you know, just, I got to throw this in there too, just talking about the vitamin C situation earlier. In addition to that, okay, so we know that we get potentially better health outcomes from this particular modality, which is real food. But what about the downside? And there was a study, this was published in 2013 in JAMA, the Journal of the American American Medical Association Internal Medicine, 2013. So this was about 10 years ago. These researchers found that people who take synthetic vitamin C supplements had about twice the risk of developing kidney stones, right? What is the downside? What is the potential harm that's being done if we're not adhering to the laws of the body, the, the basic tenets that are, again, that our genes require for healthy expression. And, you know, I, for for many years now, I've been studying like nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics. And we know that even one bite of food can potentially affect thousands of our genes. All right. It is that powerful. Food is such a powerful epigenetic controller of human health. And so what I wanted to do was just like lean into that and make some, because also, and this is one of the things that I that I love about you as well that we that we interact with. Unfortunately, we're also programmed with the idea that being healthy and eating well isn't fun. As a matter of fact, it sucks. Mm-hmm. We're programmed with this idea that you know we have to suffer in order to be healthy. You know, we just got to eat a bunch of lettuce and some carrots and you know drink water and then that, that's it. You know, just suffer. And part of that, honestly, in working as a clinician, I would see this programming come in where people like, if they're starving, they feel like they're losing weight. That means it's working. Mm -hmm. So really, they have this belief that in order to achieve health, they have to suffer. Mm -hmm. And there couldn't be two, two, two things that are so like, they're like, it's like an oxymoron. They're so opposite. Suffering should not like health should be about joy happiness, connection, fulfillment, all of these things sound healthy, you know, suffering, restriction, deprivation, you know, struggle, all these things do not sound synonymous with health. Now there is a degree, of course, of challenging oneself, but to live a life of suffering is only going to lead to more suffering. And so to jump out of that whole paradigm I found that the bridge, and this is the thing that, as you have kind of alluded to several times, that people just don't know, especially coming from the environment that I come from. They just don't know that eating real delicious foods 
is so amazing, that it feels so good, that it tastes so good, that it's better than the alternative. It's better than that other stuff. We're just not exposed to that information. And so there are a couple of key components that I really leaned into for this project, looking at a well-rounded experience with food. It's not just about the flavor of food itself, which as you mentioned earlier, you know, food scientists have came up with incredible inventions like a gas chromatograph where we can isolate flavors, you know, the chemistry of certain flavors. And we could take that flavor of a cherry and add it to things that are not cherries mm -hmm. or take the flavor of a taco and add it to, you know, potato chips, you know, Doritos or corn chips, whatever the case might be. We could, we can make things that are not those things taste like other things, right? That's, that's kind of where we're at. And we miss out on, again, an, another important evolution that not just humans, every species has this. And this is important concept or important truth, but we have a, a label for it now. It's called post-ingestive feedback. I don't know, did we talk about this before? No, no, we haven't. We haven't. <clears throat> okay, so this is a really incredible phenomenon. And essentially, you know, our cells are incredibly intelligent, far more intelligent than our conscious thinking. And if we were, for example, to, you know, we'll just say a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago, but this is still true today. But if, if our ancestors were to come across, I mentioned cherries earlier, some cherries in the wild and they eat those cherries, their cells are in, in a really remarkable way, taking in that data about what nutrients were found in those cherries. So for example, like the body's going to be like, okay, we found these assortment of amino acids, some vitamin C, some anthocyanins that were helpful with, you know, our bodies aren't giving them these labels, but these anthocyanins are like really helping the, this, the body to reduce, you know, activate lipolysis or reduce some of the stored fatty acids. Um, there's melatonin here in these dark cherries. It, this is, by the way, it's one of the most dense sources of naturally occurring melatonin found in the food. So our cells are getting all this data that this is what was found in this food and it is attaching that flavor with those nutrients. So it's post-ingestive feedback. And so if we were to develop a deficiency or go low in some of those nutrients, we would develop or evoke a craving for that flavor and seek that out. That's how we are hardwired. And animals do that in nature. And one of the studies that actually brought this to life for me was a study that was done on sheep. And they found that it's like, how do they, how do these animals know what to eat? Like, how do they know? Why do they eat those things? And every creature is eating things that their biology knows is number one, it's going to be nourishing for them. But number two, also it tastes good to them. For the most part, we're driven to eat things that taste good to us. But there's this camp, and I know you've got colleagues like this, and I know that I do as well. They're in this camp of like, food is fuel. And, you know, uh, these these concepts like, you know, eat to live, don't live to eat, and things like that. And it's well-intentioned, but it's ignoring human biology. We are driven to eat things that taste good to us. That's why we go for them. And we have one of the most complex flavor receptors of any species, and also one of the most complex senses of smell. This is what makes us so able to detect subtle flavors and all these, you know, you hear somebody like Gary Vaynerchuk talk about wine, for example, it's just like, there's subtle hints of, you know, a, a rusty penny and like dirt and a, a note of cherry cola. Like what, what are you talking about? 
But with this incredible system, we would have evolved seeking out certain flavors to meet certain needs. Now, because artificial flavors have become so immersed in our culture, it's muddying up those metabolic waters of communication. We no longer know what to eat, mm -hmm. right? We, our bodies are screaming at us due to these nutrient deficiencies, but for us, it's coming in this more pronounced experience of hunger. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just need to eat something, right? And a lot of this is happening in the hypothalamus. You know, a lot of this communication is kind of regulating our hunger and our thirst and things like that. But it is a very evolved, highly intelligent system that has just been kind of hit with a, a hammer with these uh, different flavors. And so the bottom line is what I did was I understood, number one, we are, we love tasty things. And let's not lie about that or ignore that humans love and we deserve to eat delicious things. Number two, it's not just the, 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 the taste of the food, it is the experience of the food. It is the sights, it is the sounds as well, the sonic chip experiment, which won a, an egg Nobel prize. The sonic chip experiment, basically the researchers put headphones on to participants and they found a uniform food, which for them was Pringles because they're all shaped the same and that whole thing. But they found they amplified certain aspects of the crunch. It made the participants believe or feel that the food was tastier, fresher, and more satisfying just based on the crunch. And if you look again, how we evolved, if we were to go and to grab an apple or those cherries, and in particular with an apple, for example, and we find an apple as we're out you know, foraging and we bite into a crisp apple, it's supposed to have this certain sound. But if you bite into an apple and it's mush, yeah, you don't get it. Yeah, yeah. alarm goes off, this is probably not good for me or ideal to eat. So that's another aspect, the sound of the food. The textures, all of those things are important and also the environment around us. And so with the recipes we looked at, for example, I'm a, in our culture today, we love brunch. We love pancakes. They're a big part of our culture. Let's lean into that. But instead of these highly refined bases, flowers for those things, let's use a real food. Let's use a real nutrient-dense food. And so we utilize sweet potatoes and we made these delicious sweet potato protein pancakes, increasing the protein fraction of them to reduce that kind of glycemic impact, glycemic load of the food. And also it is a sweet potato, so it's delicious. Mm -hmm. And it's a pancake, it's still a pancake, by the way. We're not saying that this is like the healthiest food in the world, but this is so much more nutrient dense, so much more health affirming and far less health detracting than the hotcakes and sausage that I would get from McDonald's if I was to you know, get up in time when I was in college. And the same thing holds true with, you know, also we're very inclusive in this project as well, because I know there's so many different diet frameworks and every researcher who's truly working from an ethical place knows that there's a wide variety of human diets all over the world. There's a different ratio of animal products in different regions of the world. There's different ratios of, you know, you name it. And so most importantly, we should be inclusive of different diet frameworks. And so there's a burger for everybody, whether it's a, a grass-fed classic kind of burger or a pescatarian framework where there's a salmon burger, which is probably, the salmon burger is probably my favorite. It's hard to say right now. It's like kind of picking your favorite kid if you're picking your favorite recipes. But right now I'm really loving the salmon burgers, but there's also a veggie burger. 
in the book as well. And so, but the veggie burgers were made from real food. And so, you know, we've got this new paradigm now with these veggie burgers that are all of these ultra processed ingredients, 40 different things, all these different chemicals. It's just, again, it's, it's, let's give people resources so they can make real food based nutrient dense foods and have these pleasurable experiences of eating foods that we enjoy. Yeah, we could go on for, for a long time. You know, there's so many topics that we have talked about in the, in the past and, um, that, that I could bring up here. Uh, I just want to take the last uh, few minutes that we have talking about this this really important um, concept of, of the social context. So, you know, the, your, your new book is a family cookbook, which I think is a, is a great thing, probably not that many family cookbooks out there. Um, from the little I know you personally, you're a great family man uh, who loves his children. Does a lot of things with his children and his and his and his wife, um, and the pictures reflect that as well. In 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 the book, it's always you know family pictures. Um, so there's there's a lot of science for that, and I've been interested in primarily, you know, studying the Mediterranean, the the, the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet. I've written about this, how important it is. Um, I mean, the diet in some ways, the Mediterranean diet is is not that fancy there's, there's nothing magic in it but the way that it that italians or people in southern france or greece consume these meals outdoors in the summer um, with friends and uh, fam uh, family members every every evening you know, it's not just a, a once once in a while let's go out for dinner it's they they essentially spend their time in the in that social context enjoying you you, you could almost say enjoying on the side um, you know the healthy food. How how important and 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 you give many examples and write a whole chapter about this. How important this this social context is, both in the preparation of food, uh, maybe even in the in the buying of food, going together to the farmers market, but then in the in the consumption. Can can you say a few more words about this? I I, I find this the, the longer I work in this area, the more I gravitate to the importance of that aspect. Yes. So as you mentioned, you know, it's not just the what, it's the who, you know, the people that we're uh, around in our environment. And we can dig into a little bit of science, but the bottom line is I'm going to rattle off some studies, just, just going to hit them out bullet points. Number one, uh, some researchers at Harvard were co uh, collecting data on family eating behavior and nutrient outcomes, food choices for years. And what they found was that families that eat together on a consistent basis have a much higher intake of whole real foods or minimally processed foods and significantly less intake of ultra processed foods, namely chips and soda. And they also found, coincidentally, these family members consumed significantly higher intake of vital nutrients that helped prevent diseases in those family members and less intake of some some food components that we've identified to be detrimental to human health, like trans fats, excessive amounts, for example. So that's number one. Number two, a study published in pediatrics, looking at health outcomes for kids in conjunction with how often they're eating with their family, with their caregivers, their parents. And they found that when children ate with their parents or caregiver, at least three meals a week, three or more, three was that minimum effective dose the children had significantly lower incidence of developing obesity and disordered eating. 
last study, you know, again, I could rattle off so many, and all of these are in the book, by the way, but another study that was published in the Journal of Nutrition Behavior, uh, I'm sorry, the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior. Now, this one especially was, this is kind of one of the catalysts for me writing this book in the first place, because this was done on minority children who would generally be in the context of like a lower income environment. Because for me, even when I hear that stuff, I'm like, well, those families can eat together because it may be, you know, they're making more money or whatever it is. And what they found was that when these children ate with their family, you know, with their caregiver, parents, four meals a week, any meal, breakfast, lunch, or dinner didn't matter, four meals a week, the children ended up eating five, at least five servings of fruits and vegetables five days of the week, and significantly less intake of ultra-processed foods, specifically chips and soda. But the researchers noted that that was seen, especially when the TV was never or rarely on during mealtimes. There was something protective about not having the TV on when these kids were eating with their, their caregivers. And so this shines for me a bright but subtle, subtle light. You kind of got to look, read between the lines here, that even if we don't have a lot of money, had my family known that eating together could be protective for the children in the family, I believe that they would have done it. At least they would have had the opportunity. But we didn't know. And I'm not exaggerating. I ate with my family. I can count on my hands how many times I sat down and ate a meal with my parents. All right. Usually those were holidays. We did not eat together. And, you know, there's, again, something protective about this. And last, I'll share one more study really quickly. And this was published in the journal uh, Family and Consumer Sciences. And this was for us as adults. And they were looking at office workers at IBM. And they found that when these workers, regardless of how much stress they were experiencing at work, if they were able to consistently make it home and eat dinner with their families, their, their stress levels stayed manageable, work morale stayed high, productivity, all those things. But as soon as things started cutting into their ability to eat dinner with their families, stress began to creep up and become unmanageable and work morale went down, productivity goes down, health goes down. We know today stress is one of the biggest contributors to chronic diseases. And so there's something protective. It helps our, us to metabolize stress when we are around people that we care about. And a quick peek behind the curtain, why is, why is this? Part of it is there is a notable switch that happens with our nervous system. When we are just out in the world and we're doing stuff and we're you know working hard and all the things, we're generally in this sympathetic fight or flight nervous system. And it's largely, it's largely agreed upon that this is a binary system. Like you're not just a, a little bit in sympathetic, like you're either in it or you're in the other, which is parasympathetic. And the nickname for that one is rest and digest, mm -hmm. rest and digest nervous system. And so making that switch in our nervous system, there's something about being around people that care about us, that we love, that helps our bodies to switch over to that rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system. And it factually improves assimilation of nutrients, digestion, elimination. These things are improved according to the data that we have when we're in a parasympathetic relaxed state around people that we care about, friends, family. And so in addition, we've got this really interesting, this, this 
hormone is is having a moment right now as well, oxytocin. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it because of the last couple of years and not really having the the access for many people to be around people that they love. You know, we've had this this new thing introduced into our society in a massive way of social distancing. And so what we know is that oxytocin is one of the few hormones that appears to, in in a way, neutralize the activity of cortisol. And oxytocin is noted to be this very powerful bonding chemical that we produced, that we produce as human beings. In particular, uh, bonding with, women do oxytocin really well, exceptionally well, when women are with other women, but also bonding with our children, uh, bonding with you know our intimate partners, family members, friends, that kind of stuff. But the key is we have an uptake in oxytocin when we're around people that we care about. And it just starts to like neutralize and reduce the activity of our stress hormones. And the last part here, and again, there's so many different kind of biological aspects, but the psychological aspect here, one of the primary ones is in particular with our children in the age of social media and where unfortunately many of our children you know, one of a, our deep-seated kind of psychological human needs is to feel significant, is to feel like we matter, is to feel like our life is important. And when you go on a social media, which our children today, they're born into it, and they spend hours and hours a day not feeling significant, they're looking at the significance of other people all day scrolling. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to fish for significance themselves to sit down without these devices being present and to actually see your child, to look at them, your child, your grandchild, nieces, nephews, cousins, whatever the case might be, and us as adults, mm -hmm. to actually be seen today where somebody is present with you and listening to the sound of your voice, it matters more than ever. It really does help to, to reduce stress, to, again, kind of cultivate and pour into that desire that need for significance and we can get that all in a meal you know the dinner table can act as a unifier and it doesn't matter what meal it is but it can act as a unifier and fulfill psychological needs fulfill biological needs and also of course fulfill the need to eat delicious food yeah i think this is a good point to you know to close this conversation uh, fascinating i have to say you know i've talked to to many authors um I can't think of anybody who has this wide range of scientific insights, practical insights, life experience, um, and also a great way of, of presenting the information in, a, in an easily digestible way. So, um, you know, I don't know if you can see this. I'm going to put it in, in the introduction as well. But, you know, the, the, this book is, is a must for anybody who... Um, particularly if you have a family with young children, this is an absolute must to read this book. And um, but but let me end with one question: What's out of these hundred recipes, all of which look delicious, which one is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to ask this. Oh no! Okay, again, it's like picking your favorite kid. You know, it's like it's very different, and you know, I appreciate them for different things. But I gotta say, um, right now I I love the salmon burger. I just it's it's it just feels good. It it tastes delicious. It's gonna knock your socks off. Um, but I would say another one would be 
Oh, I, I'll just, I'll tell you what we had last night. How about that? Last night we had the tortilla soup. We had the tortilla soup last night and it is amazing, especially during this time of year. It's just kind of wholesome and, you know, it just feels like a hug in a bowl. Uh, so that, that, that's what we had last night. So difficult to pick. Uh, my, my youngest son, of course, like, you know, kids love the snacks, but uh, we've got these cherry frozen yogurt pops as well. So like he, if he wants a frozen treat, you know, there's all, they're always there in the freezer. And it's also fun to make together too. just get the little popsicle molds. And, you know, I go on and on so many great treats in there as well, but those are, those are my favorites right now. Yeah. So, so we're going to have definitely the salmon burger tonight to maybe the tortilla soup. <laughs> Can't wait to make them. Awesome. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Sean. Wonderful conversation. Um, I hope we'll continue this habit of, of uh, you know, every year or every six months or so to update ourselves and the audience about the latest in, in uh, the science of and practice of wellness, of health and wellness. Thanks so much. It's my honor. Thank you.